Let's take a look at Jeremiah. I'd like to get through uh, some portion of chapter 15, starting in chapter 11. And the reason I'm, I'm going through is because so much of it is repetitive, but you, there's something unique in each chapter, uh, something beautiful in each chapter. So on the overhead, you'll see, uh, which kind of bring yourselves up to speed here, chapters 1 to 29 in Jeremiah as a whole deal primarily with the broken covenant between Israel and God and the consequent judgment spelled out in this covenant, which is spelled out in Deuteronomy 28. If you ever read Deuteronomy 28, this is the covenant of God. It's the old Mosaic covenant. God gave the law on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. And in Deuteronomy 28, it's the first uh, chapters, or chapter 28, verses 1 through 14, God is saying, if you will obey me, I will bless you. I will bless your socks off. Everything will go just right if you'll just obey me. From verses 15 onward or verses 16 to the end of the chapter, and they're long. I mean, it's like triple the things of curses that there are the blessings. If you disobey me, here's what's going to happen to you. And you know, when you look at it today, I want you to know that Israel today, if Israel would just begin to obey God, which means they need to receive their Messiah, this could be the most powerful, unbelievably wonderful nation on the planet. They forfeit so much. You wonder why they're in the situation they're in. But if they just would obey the Lord God, if they imagine the world would, would look to them, no one would even come up to them to, or would even encroach upon their, their borders to hurt Israel. If they would just obey God and obeying God begins with receiving Jesus as the Messiah, but they didn't, they haven't and they will not until a time in which God has designated. And as a result, they are cursed. Everything that happens to them, they're cursed. Now, we're pro-Israel because we don't want to be against Israel. But these people hate Jesus the Messiah. We want what's best for Israel. We pray for Israel. We want to be friends with Jews. But they are our enemies with regard to the gospel. Don't ever forget that. And what's happening to them and what happened to them back in the Holocaust and in every century that precedes it is because of their disobedience to God. This nation is showing, is an illustration of what happens when you break covenant with God. And they did. They, they had a covenant. They said they would obey and follow. God gave them everything, put them in this land, and they disobeyed. And that's what um, Jeremiah is telling them. Here's why God is against you. Jeremiah chapter 1 recalls the call of the prophet. Chapter 2 presents the formal legal lawsuit against Judah. Remember, Israel in the north has gone into oblivion. And now Judah in the south noticed it. They knew, saw what happened to Israel. It didn't seem to bother them. They just remained uh, in their rebellion. And so God has given them a legal lawsuit, a divorce, as it were. In Jeremiah chapter 3, verse up to chapter 4, <clears throat> it's an unsuccessful call for Judah to repent and return to the covenant that they broke. Chapter 4 through chapter 6, verse 30, describes the consequent judgment, uh, which is specifically the Babylonian invasion. The Babylonians are going to come into Israel and take God's people out of God's land and take them into another land. Unthinkable to Israel as it would be unthinkable to the United States of America. Russia's going to come in, take our people, ship us all over to Russia. We go, no, that ain't going to happen. No way. We're blessed people. We're all Christians. God loves us here. People think that. Uh, but that could happen. And that's all the more Israel thought. Chapters 7 through 10, we saw two weeks ago, zeroes in on false religion, primarily idolatry, which is equivalent to spiritual adultery, and its punishment. And in chapter 11, as we go forward tonight, it opens a new and a large subunit within chapters 1 to 29, that continues to the end of 29, focusing on Jeremiah's role as God's prophet in conflict with the kings of Judah and all of their false prophets who oppose God's word and prophesy counteractive lies in God's name. Now that puts us in our own context. We live in a world where our presidents and our leaders are no good. I mean, don't even, don't ever think it's going to get good. They're not, no one's going to elect a Christian. Uh, and people that call themselves Christians, I mean, Come on, it's so, so uh, debatable on what that even means in people's lives. And then aside from our governing leaders, what about our, our pastoral leaders and the churches today? So the same problem then is what we have today. Our leaders in government, our teachers are false, our leaders are false. And so what happens when someone who is true like Jeremiah comes in and begins to preach what is true? Does the whole world come together and repent? Unfortunately not. Chapter 11, let's just do a cursory view of some things here. Uh, verse 2, chapter 11, verse 2, hear the words of this covenant. Speak to the men of Judah. That covenant, Deuteronomy 28, blessings for obedience, cursings for disobedience. At the end of verse 3, he says, cursed is the man who does not heed the words of this covenant. 
Cursed. If you don't obey God, cursed are you. Um, end, of cha- end of verse 4, middle of verse 4, he says, Listen to my voice and do according to all which I command you, so you shall be my people and I will be your God. That seems pretty basic. Verse 7, For I solemnly warned your fathers in the day that I brought them up from the land of Egypt. By the way, this is around 600 B.C. God brought them out of Israel in 1446 B.C., so a good 800 years. Um, way back then that I brought them up in the land of Egypt, even this day, warning them persistently, saying, Listen to my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but walked each one in the stubbornness of his evil heart. Is that the same problem we have today? People do what they want to do. Hey, it's my life. I do what I want. I'll make my own God. And if you ever ask somebody who God is, they say, well, I believe in a God of da 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 I believe, well, that, you can believe in that God, but does that God exist? People make up a God that does what they like, that allows them to do and be what they want to be, do what they want to do. That's everywhere. But that God doesn't exist. We have one God. There can only be one God. Because if there were two gods, then one would lack what the other one has. That means it would be necessary for two gods. There's only one God. There can only be, logically, one God. And that God has expressed himself, shown Israel who he was. And they were supposed to shine the light of God to the world. They didn't. Look at verse 10. They have turned back to the iniquities of their ancestors who refused to hear my words. And they have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing disaster on them, which will they not able to escape, though they will cry to me, yet I will not listen to them. Verse 14, therefore, do not pray for this people. We saw that back in chapter 7, verse 16. This is the second time God is telling a prophet, do not pray for this people, nor lift up a cry or prayer for them. For I will not listen when they call to me because of their disaster. What right has my beloved in my house when she has done many vile deeds? That tells you that at a certain point, you sin so much, so much rebellion, you get to a certain point, God says, I'm done. I'm finished. I've done all I can do. You're no longer listening. I'm no longer hearing the prayer of a righteous man, mind you. It's not that Jeremiah's done something wrong, but God is telling Jeremiah, Jeremiah, appreciate your heart. But I'm not listening to you. You're asking me to forgive their sin. You're asking me to make everything right. I'm not doing it. I'm done listening. Stop praying it. Can you imagine that? Verse 17, the Lord of hosts who planted you has pronounced evil against you because of the evil of the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Look at verse 19. Actually, verse 18. So Jeremiah has been told not to pray. Not necessarily command that he would be in sin if he did because he continues to do so. Verse 18, moreover, as if it couldn't be worse, moreover, the Lord made it known to me, and I knew it. Then you showed me their deeds, but I was like a gentle lamb led to the slaughter. And I did not know that they devised plots against me, saying, let us destroy the tree with its fruit, and let us cut him off from the land of the living, that his name be remembered no more. Middle of verse 20, let me see your vengeance on them, Jeremiah says. For to you have I committed my cause. Therefore, thus says the Lord concerning the men of Anathoth. Who are the men of Anathoth? Look at Jeremiah 1, 1. Where's Jeremiah from? The words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah. Of the priests who were in Anathoth, the land of Benjamin. This is his hometown folks. His hometown people are going to betray him. He's like a lamb to the slaughter. Don't pray for them anymore. I'm not listening anymore. And he lets him know they're going to betray you, Jeremiah. Your own people, your own priests, from the priests at Anathoth. And so he does. So he gets it. Is it a good thing to be called to be a preacher in those days, in these days? Chapter 12. Actually, let's go through on the overhead. Chapter 11. Uh, Just a quick summary. He was to remind the Jews of the curses and the blessings. In verses 6 to 8, since the Jews have repeatedly disobeyed the curses of Deuteronomy 28, 15 and following, they've now started to fall upon them. They really, all they got to do is read their, read the Bible and say, well, clearly this is what we've done. This is why we're getting what we're getting due to idol worship. God turned away from them. God won't even listen to the prayers of a righteous man on their behalf. God laments that his people must be destroyed. God laments this. God's not saying this is fun. I'm going to get them. 
God laments that he would have to destroy people who have abandoned him. As an indicator of having rejected God, the Jews reject Jeremiah, even those from his hometown of Anathoth, where he is betrayed by his friends and fellow priests. Um, It's like what Jeremiah was feeling, what Jeremiah went through, and being abandoned by his own people. It's like God was showing the prophet, this is what it's like, this is what they've done to me. Sometimes a prophet has to feel that, has to get that, has to feel that same betrayal so he understands from his heart and his passion what he's preaching, what's going on. Chapter 12, just a cursory look. This really asks the question that people ask today. Why do wicked people seem to prosper? Why do they get away with so much? How does this happen? Righteous are you, O Lord, that I would plead my case with you. Indeed, I would discuss matters of justice with you. Jeremiah's going, let's talk justice. Why aren't these people getting it? Why has the way of the wicked prospered? I want you to write out there beside your Bible, read Psalm 73. Just be a good thing to go home and read tonight if you don't have anything else to read. That's the same questions being asked. Why have they prospered? The middle of verse 3, drag them off like sheep for the slaughter and set them apart for a day of carnage. Folks, this is what you're thinking about people that hate God and that you hate Do you think you can keep that hidden from God if you're thinking it? He knows. Might as well pray it. Maybe you confess it. Lord, here's what I really want for these people. In all honesty, you think God's going, wow, I didn't know that about you. This is a come to Jesus moment for you. Go ahead and express, here's how I feel. Lord, I would really love to love my enemies, but this is how I really want. This is what I want for them. Okay. Lord, if you, if you would, convert them, but if you don't, get them. Amen. And he will. That's what he's going to do. In the third bowl judgment, the book of Revelation chapter 16, the third bowl is poured out, and it's the worst of the worst. People are dying, millions, what's left of the planet. People are dying horribly, and there's a pause. And the angels come out and say, bless you, Lord, All honor and glory to you, Lord. They deserve it. They deserve it. Why do they deserve it? Because he says, they persecuted your prophets and priests. They persecuted those who tried to tell them that you love them. They persecuted those who who told them lovingly, repent of your sins. So don't think it's always bad to pray for for the slaughter even the day of carnage for those who hate God. Verse 5, if you have run with footmen, this is God saying, and they have tired you out, how can you compete with horses? So we ask these questions, Lord, why? Why is this happening? Why am I struggling like this? Why are these people getting away with everything and I'm not? Why is, why is it so hard? Why is my life so difficult, Lord? Talk to me. You know that God never sympathizes with that question. And he never tells us why bad things happen to seemingly good people. Here's what he says. Maybe he clears his throat because God's getting old. He's been around for eternity. If you have run with footmen, if you've run in a foot race with men, with people, and they have tired you out, how are you going to compete with horses? This is God saying, look, I know you're tired and worn out, but are you so dull now? I've got more for you. How are you going to run with horses? How are you going to compete at the highest level when you can't get out of kindergarten? That's what God is saying. And we want more. We want, we say, Lord, let me glorify you. Let me praise and glorify you. Okay, I I will let you. But how is it that you're stuck and spinning your wheels in your current trial? If you can't get out of this, how are you going to do that? If you fall down in a land of peace, How will you do in the thicket in the Jordan? Verse 7. God says, I have forsaken my house and abandoned my inheritance. I've given the beloved of my soul into the hand of her enemies. The beloved of my soul, I've given her into my enemies. Imagine doing that with your own children. Your own children defy you and defy you and defy you. And they're your children. I mean, who do we love more on the planet than our own children? Our own flesh and blood. They defy you and defy you and defy you. You'll always love them. But at a certain point you say, I've given them up. They are defiant. They are beyond help. I've told them everything I can tell them. Demonstrate everything I can demonstrate to them. Giving them up. This is what God knows how you feel. 
He did this with his nation, with his people, giving them over into the hands of enemies. Verse 8, my inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has roared against me. Therefore, I have come to hate her. I have come to hate her. You can put out by the side of your Bible if you have a pen, Malachi 1, 2, and 3, Hosea 9, 15, where God is using the same type verbiage for the same type reasons. Verse 10 this is how it came to this. Many shepherds have ruined my vineyard. The vineyard is his people. The shepherds are the, are the, the teachers, uh, the kings, the prophets. They have trampled down my field. They have made my pleasant field a desolate wilderness. Verse 13, they have sown wheat and reaped thorns. That's why they've reaped thorns. They've reaped thorns because they're living in the curse. That comes from Deuteronomy 29 or 28, 38. They have strained themselves to no profit. But be ashamed of your harvest because of the fierce anger of the Lord. If you are spinning your wheels in your life, you can't just can't seem to, to get to where you would like to be. Maybe you're just not in fellowship with God at all. Maybe everything you're doing is cursed because you are not walking with God. Everything is for you. It's all about you. Think about your prayers. When you pray, isn't it always about what God needs to do for you? Help me, Lord. Get me through this, Lord. Just today. Give me a good day. I mean, one of my favorite singers of all time is uh, Don Williams. I'm feeling empty and misunderstood. Oh, Lord, I hope this day is good. Is that as far as your prayers go? I mean, that's a good country song. But it's just so shallow. That's what most people that call themselves Christians pray. Lord, just make this day good for me. Just. You should record yourself every time you pray and, and see how many times you say the word Just. Just. And then just, and then just this, just, 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 what, which one is it? God's got to be asking. I thought it was just that. Now it's just this. Expand what you're praying for. The glory of God, not your day being good. Not all your problems going away. Remember I've told you before, what if God took one day and answered all your prayers? Would anyone else be affected but you? You'd get your million dollars, get all your problems solved for a day. Everyone would like you. Everyone on the freeway would drive like you want them to drive. All of your debt would be taken care of. Bam, that's a great, would anyone else be affected? Because God just answered all your prayers that day. You had a good day. What about praying for others? What about losing yourself in the problems of other people? God says in the middle of verse 14, I'm about to uproot them from the land and uproot the house of Judah from among them. I will again have compassion on them and will bring them back each one to his inheritance and each one to his land. Well, God has to do that because if he gets rid of them completely, then he's a liar. He has a covenant to keep. So having been betrayed by his people, Jeremiah prays for justice and judgment upon them. God tells him that the Jews will treat him even worse. God speaks of judgment on the Jews even as he repeatedly uses relational terms. Note that, stressing that these are his own people. They're my house. They're my inheritance. They're the one I love. Thus Jeremiah's betrayal. By Israel illustrated their betrayal of God. After God uproots his people, he promises to return them to the land to restore their fortunes. Just not that generation. He declares that he hates his inheritance. So look at the overhead. Does God hate? Um, verse 8 again. My inheritance has become to me like a lion in the forest. She has roared at me. It's like a child talking back to a parent. Therefore I have come to hate her. Hate, the Hebrew word is, is sané. Uh, expresses an emotional attitude toward persons. You know what it means to hate. That's what this one, definition means. It's an emotional attitude towards persons or things which are opposed, detested, despised, and with which one wishes to have no contact or relationship. Hate in the Bible is the same way we use hate today. But it can also mean something a little less. God uses this term in Hosea 9.15 to depict the shift in the relationship due to Israel's terrible sin. And Hosea, if you've ever read Hosea, you know that God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute who will cheat on him, and she cheats on him, and she's representative of Israel cheating on God. And then God says, go buy her back. And he does. He buys her back. Was she worth it? No. Who would do that? Was Israel worth it? Is Israel worth it? No. But this is what God is doing. It's an illustration. Yet God hates God also uses this term in Malachi 1, 2, and 3 to depict his attitude towards Esau. Remember, God hated Esau, but he loved Jacob. God's covenant promises were with Jacob, not the line of Esau. doesn't mean that first definition. He didn't say, I'm going to hate that baby because he made this covenant before the twins were born. He didn't say, you know what, that baby, I do not like him. 
I don't like what he's going to become. That's not what it's saying. It's my love, my affection, what I'm doing will go towards Jacob, not Esau. And so God is saying he's withdrawn his love. He's withdrawn his protection from this generation when he says he hates. How many of you know Latin? Took Latin? No classical educated people? Really? So I can pronounce this. Corruptio optimi pessima. That's what chapter 13 is about. It means corruption is the best. Corruption of the best is the worst. Corruptio, you can see corruption in that, right? Optima, great. Optimal, you might think. Pessima, corruption of the best is the worst. When the best is corrupted, that's the worst. That's what Tim Hawkins should have done his spiel on, the worst. How many of you know what I'm talking about? Thank you. That's the worst. Aristotle said this, tyranny being the corruption of the best form of government, he's talking about, is therefore the worst. Meaning a good king is the best, but if the good king becomes corrupt, becomes the worst. Shakespeare said it this way, lilies that fester smell, lilies that fester smell far worse than weeds. They smell great until they rot and they smell worse than weeds. That which is great, when what is great becomes bad, it's the worst. Okay, look at chapter 13. You have a belt. Lord said to me, go and buy yourself a linen waistband uh, and put it around your waist, but do not put it in the water. So he went and got a waistband. And then God says, I want you to go to the Euphrates and bury it there. By the way, the Euphrates is 300 miles away from where he is. He's got to go there and back. There's no train. There's no car. He's got to walk that distance. That would take about eight months there and back. Not necessarily out of the ordinary, but God, okay, take this great, this belt, by the way, would be something that prophets don't wear. And it's going to, uh, people, if, it would be like me coming in here, um, and I normally dress so debonair, but if I came in, let's say, with a beautiful silk tie and jeans and a t-shirt, or shorts and a t-shirt, boots with shorts, and high socks that came up past my knees. The tie, wow, that's a beautiful silk tie. That doesn't go with what you're wearing. And so that would be kind of a spectacle, wouldn't it? That's the spectacle here. Put on this belt, this linen belt that only priests wear, and then walk around town. Hey, sweet belt, uh, what's going on? That's kind of what it would be. Now he goes and he takes that belt 300 miles away, buries it in the cleft of a rock, comes back, and then God later says, go back and get the belt. It's rotten. He comes back and he takes what was a spectacle. And now people are going to ask, what's going on here? That's the point here. So that which was great was great. But it, when it becomes bad, it's really bad. Jeremiah's linen belt was not part of the prophetic wardrobe. And he's a prophet. And we also know he's a priest, though. It was a priestly garment, as Leviticus 16 foretells us, to wear a linen belt. When Jeremiah put on his new belt, he became a public spectacle. That's what I said. I used the same illustration there. By going 300 miles away to allow it to rot in the Euphrates, he could return with a celebrated belt, giving him the perfect opportunity to explain his prophecy. What was the best has become the worst. Philip Graham Ryken says this about this. He says, the parable of the linen belt thus reminds us to glorify God and trust in him alone. If your whole life is devoted to the service of Jesus Christ, you are like a linen belt around God's waist. You look great. But if you are trusting in money, ability, family, government, or anything besides God, then what you are doing is useless. If your life is not dedicated to bringing honor and renown to God, then it is worth about as much as a belt buried in a pile of dirt. You are worthless when it comes to your primary purpose, which is giving glory to God. You were made to be the brightest ornament in all creation, but the corruption of the best becomes the worst. We are the best of what God has done. When we become corrupted, we become the worst because we were great and now we're bad. And so the chapter proceeds. Uh, you've got, uh, as you go forward here, um, let's see, go to verse 12. Therefore, you are to speak this word to the people. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Every jug is to be filled with wine. Everybody would go, yeah, that makes sense. Perfect. What a brilliant prophecy. And when they say to you, do we 
Do we not know very well that every jug is to be filled with wine? Then say to them, thus says the Lord, behold, I am about to fill all the inhabitants of this land, the kings that sit for David on his throne, the priests, the prophets, and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem with drunkenness. In other words, Jeremiah is saying, you people are the jug. And I'm about to pour my wrath into you, and you're going to explode. That's what wine does in wine skins. And old wine skins. Your old wine skins. That's the next picture. The first picture is the linen belt. You're like that. You've become the worst. You've become this beautiful wine, but you are going to be the worst of wine. It's going to blow up in your face. Verse 16, give glory to the Lord your God before he brings darkness and before your feet stumble on the dusky mountains. And while you are hoping for light, the mountains. What do you do on the mountain? You walk up beautiful mountains. You walk in the light. What is great will become darkness for you. He makes it into deep darkness and turns it into gloom. And then another illustration in the middle of verse 17. Because the flock of the Lord has been taken captive. Say to the king and the queen mother. By the way, the king at this time is Jehoiakim or Chen, if you will. His mother was Nehushta, hence his mother. The king, just like Aristotle said, the king. It's supposed to be the, the greatest. When the king is great, everything's great. It's the greatest. When the king is corrupt, that which is great is the worst. That Latin phrase. Take a lowly seat. Say to the king and the queen mother, take a lowly seat. For your beautiful crown has come down on your head. We see when Israel goes into captivity on three different occasions. This is kind of a mini captivity. Around 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar comes into town. And he takes uh, the nobles out of Israel, out of what's left of Judah, I should say, the nobles. Uh, the nobles are going to be the, the sons of royalty. So if Judah's going to survive, um, they're going to have to obey the king in Babylon because he's got their children. He's got all the noble children, Daniel of which is one of these people. He's taken the nobles' children into Babylon, 605 B.C. He puts a king in place named Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. Later on, Jehoiakim um, rebels, and then he dies and then his son Jehoiachin, or Chen, Ken, uh, he begins to reign just for about three months before Nebuchadnezzar comes back. He takes Jehoiachin back to Babylon. And Ezekiel's along with this crowd. This is the second exile, just another mini exile. Later on, he comes back in 586 and just empties everything out and leaves. He gives Jeremiah a choice. You can stay or you can go. You can stay here, you can go. And takes what's left. The only people that are left are the poor and destitute that are left, and Jeremiah continues to minister to them. But the point being is he takes Jehoiakim, their king, in front of them, out of their land. It would be traumatic. And what was supposed to be great, because he was evil too, just like his daddy, and what was supposed to be great is the worst. And then he puts another king in place. What's his name, class? Starts with a Z. Zedekiah, who will rebel 11 years later, which brings Nebuchadnezzar back for the 586 destruction. And so you see him giving this, this uh, picture. Israel, led especially by their leaders, has rejected God's glory and honor, replacing it with prideful arrogance, boasting in the glorious things of the promised land, but not acknowledging that it was God who gave it to them. The best has become the worst. The linen belt, the full bottle of wine, the twilight on the mountainside, the royal family, and the shaming of the prostitute. Uh, that prostitute at the end is a woman. It's very, um, it's very vivid. Verse 27, as for your adulteries and your lustful neighings, like a horse neighing, the lewdness of your prostitution on the hills and the field, this is them going out on high places to get closer to the so-called gods, worshiping them. This is, God associates this with, with adultery. On the hills of the field, I have seen your abominations. Woe to you, O Jerusalem. How long will you remain unclean? Where does he say it up here? He says, um, Yeah, there it is, verse 26. So I myself have also stripped your skirts off over your face so that your shame may be seen. It's going to take, this is, the picture is taking a woman and taking her, her skirt and putting it over her face and all of her, her nakedness shown. This is what God is going to do to Israel, to his people. Hence this picture lesson, shaming of the prostitute to teach them all the same lessons. These are five pictures of man's total depravity 
They show what sin looks like and what the judgment, uh, the judgment that deserves. They show what human beings become when they fall short of the glory of God, corruptio, optima, pessima. When that which is great becomes corrupt, it becomes the worst. God's people are supposed to be great, and they have become the worst. God, in word pictures you see here in the, on the overhead, God often instructs Jeremiah, as well as other prophets he did with Ezekiel. Remember, Ezekiel had to build a house. God closed his mouth. No more talking, Ezekiel. You're going to act out all your prophecies. And he does this to communicate to the people through symbols and acted out dramatic lessons. Linen belt, loin, or the loincloth. Some have it as a loincloth. And, and it's, it's been said this linen belt or a loincloth, underwear, if you will, uh, fits tight. It's, it fits around. It, it keeps clothes up. There's an intimacy about this garment. And if the people of Israel are like this, they have an intimacy with God. And yet they've ruined it. And they've, they've defiled it. And so God has taken it off, as it were. Um, speaks of a close, intimate relationship. And smashes like a pot. Wears like a yoke. Uh, God has these pictures that the prophets have, uh, prophets have to do. In fact, Isaiah, what does Isaiah do that's quite odd? Goes around naked. How'd you like to be that guy? Showing his buttocks, it says. And you're going, man, Lord, really? Come on, can you, can you call somebody else? I mean, can I wear something? But no, he doesn't. And God is showing, this is what you're, this, the prophet is illustrating your own shame. That, that's an image you don't forget. And that's what God wanted. It appears that God has a powerful and poetic sense of justice and he enjoys or likes to describe his judgments as memorable punishments that fit the crime. So if your punishment, whatever your pet sin is, the pet sins of people, people who who like to have many sensual pleasures with many sexual partners, I wonder how bad their eternal existence will be. What is pleasurable in this life will be the worst hell they can ever imagine. Or those who have built people out of money and what they will have to endure, what they have looked at, what they have done. If the punishment fits the crime, hell will be different for everyone. What we enjoy and what we insist upon today will be the curse of our lives. And what's left, I say what's left of it, we will live for eternity. They, those inhabitants of hell, will live for eternity because destruction is eternal, never ends. We think of destruction as it's done, it's over. But the destroying goes on for eternity. Oh, hell, hell is so horrible. I find myself thinking of hell far more than I think of heaven. I can't help it. It's so horrible. It's the worst doctrine in all of Scripture. You wonder, can it be real? Can it, can it be actually real? Are people going to go to hell? Is that what people preach today? It's been taken out of the Bible. Dating back to the 17th century, it was not in vogue. Certainly in our day, it's been kicked out of the Bible altogether. Do you know who talks about hell more than anyone else in the Bible? Jesus. Do you think hell is talked about more in the Bible than heaven? By at least three to one. Hell is, if we're going to believe in heaven because it's in the Bible, we must believe in hell. We know people that are going there. We know people that are there. It breaks our hearts. And yet God has given a loving message for we preachers, for we evangelists, all of us to preach. It's fair. You are a sinner. Repent of your sin. Receive Jesus. He is your peace treaty. He will wash your sins away. He brings you to heaven for his glory. And you don't go to hell. Oh, it's just a horrible doctrine. I mean, I don't mean any disrespect to God. I don't mean it like that. It's just horrible to think about. Chapter 14, verse 1. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah in regard to the drought. The drought. There's a drought on the land. Think about a drought. Think about a real drought. Where there is no more rain. There is no more water. You can't go turn your faucet on and just, just a little flip. Bam, there's water. Turn it off. Water's off. Water's on. Water's off. Got clothes to wash. Got water to get. pour out. We take a bath or a shower. How much water goes down the drain? How long do we stand in the shower with hot water on the back because it feels good? How much water goes down the drain? Imagine a real drought where there is no water. You dig a well and there is no water. Just the basic of life. This is the drought. This is when things get so desperate. The word of God came to him 
in regard to the drought. Into verse 2, the cry of Jerusalem has ascended, obviously, to God. Their nobles have sent their servants for water. They have come to the cisterns and found no water. They've returned with, empty, with vessels empty. They have been put to shame and humiliated. No rain in the land. Verse 7, although our iniquities testify against us, O Lord, act for your name's sake. That's what people say. People that have broken the covenant with God dare to pray to God. I put out in the margin of my Bible, no. Lord, we need water. Act for your name's sake. No. No. If I'm not going to listen to Jeremiah, who's a godly man, I'm not going to listen to your cries who have broken the covenant with me. Ah, oh, the nerve of people to break God's covenant. Like a man who cheats on his wife, cheats on her, hurts her, and goes back and says, hey, can I get a favor from you? Can, can I have a favor from you? Can, will you do me a favor? No. Truly our apostasies. Has Jeremiah committed these apostasies? Nobody's owning it. The people are his. Have been many. We have sinned against you. I, I didn't used to think that. I've always struggled with that. Especially in the modern day where we're supposed to apologize. This generation is supposed to apologize to a past generation. Um, I did not enslave people. I did not go to Africa and enslave people. I am not responsible for that. And yet my people did. I mean just to name one sin. Do I owe modern African Americans an apology? I do. I'm so sorry that my people did that. I can't believe that people thought that was okay. I can't believe that people called themselves Christians in the South and said, that's okay. This is what God wants. It's in the Bible. I can't believe that. That's hard for me to imagine. I, I wouldn't, but then I think, if I lived in that generation, maybe I would have. Maybe I would have listened to the false prophets who said, that's okay. Maybe I would have listened to the false prophets who said, black people are not really humans. There's a lot to apologize for. We have behaved, I can't, and we talk about God blessing us. How or why would God bless that? How? Why? Yes, I owe an apology to them. My black brothers and sisters, I am sorry for my people. I'm sorry for my own racism. I'm sorry for me being a, a complete total sinner in every way possible. I hate me. I'm not a good person. I don't deserve anything but hell. I deserve all of that. Because I'm guessing even if I were in the garden, I would have fallen asleep too. I'm thinking that if I needed 30 pieces of silver, maybe if I sold Jesus, I could pay some debts and I'd be all right. I'd just ask God to forgive me. I'm thinking I might just, if some little girl came up and said, hey, I saw you with them, that I might do what Peter said. I don't even know what you're talking about. Oh, we have sinned. Jeremiah owns it as his own. Our apostasies have been many. We have sinned against you. Verse, eight, verse 9. Why are you like a man dismayed? Like a mighty man who cannot save. This is Jeremiah asking God this. Why aren't you saving these people? Are you not omnipotent? Aren't all powerful? Yet you are in our midst. Are you not omnipresent? Can you not see this God? You ever pleaded with God this way or heard people do so? God never answers it. Because you see when people, we know from Jeremiah, when people are suffering this way, what am I going to say? It's for a reason. I was going to say, that's a nice way of saying it. I was going to say they deserve it. They deserve it. Israel has constantly rebelled against God. Israel killed their Messiah. Israel continues to hate the name of Yeshua. Hate it. To bring it up in their presence, some of them shiver. Don't say that name around me. Israel hates the Lord. Why are they suffering as they do? Oh, I want to say. And Benjamin Netanyahu, he's, a, he's an upstanding ruler, an upstanding man. I like him, but he too rejects the Lord Jesus. Why is Israel surrounded by enemies? Why are they tormented? Why are they going through the hell they're going through? Why did they lose six million Jews in the Holocaust? The answer, they rejected God. And they are the most important people on this planet. They are the most important people on this planet. God shone his light in them. And they were supposed to shine that light to the world. They are suffering because they hate God. Oh, and they could have it so good. 
So good. And so Jeremiah is asking, are you not mighty to save? God's, yeah, I am, but this is a rebellious nation. Are you not in our midst? I am, but this is a rebellious nation. Do not forsake us, he says at the end of verse 9. Thus says the Lord, verse 10, to this people, even so they have loved to wander. They have not kept their feet in check. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them. What was true then is true today. Just think about it. Therefore, the Lord does not accept them now, accept them. Now he will remember their iniquity and call their sins to account. So the Lord said to me, do not pray for the welfare of this people. When they fast, I am not going to listen to their cry. When they offer burnt offering and grain offering, I am not going to accept them. Rather, I'm going to make an end to them by the sword, famine, and pestilence. I think people today who call themselves Christians, who go around acting as they want to do, disobeying God's word, saying, I don't believe that in the Bible. I don't believe in election. I believe women should be preachers just because I do, even though the Bible says don't. I think that's them. They're coming to worship, calling it worship. They're giving money. They're doing what they think they should. And God's saying, I don't care about anything you do. I'm not listening to your singing. I'm not taking your money. I don't care about your good deeds. You reject me when you reject my word or any part of it for that matter. I'm going to make an end to them, God says, by three things, sword, famine, and pestilence. But, ah, Lord God, I said, look, the prophets are telling them. This is Jeremiah saying, but Lord, these people aren't guilty. The false prophets are telling them these things. They're only believing it because of false prophets. And you and I look today and we look at a a church like Lakewood. Lakewood, and we think, oh, those poor people, they're just being fed lies. They're innocent. It's Joel Osteen who's the problem. It's Kenneth Copeland that's the problem. It's all the false teachers in our day. No, those people are innocent. No, that's not what God says. All the prophets are telling them lies. They're telling them that you will not see the sword, nor will you have famine. But I will give you lasting peace in this place. That's what the prophets said then. That's what they say now. Verse 14, then the Lord said to me, the prophets are prophesying falsehood in my name. I have neither sent them nor commanded them nor spoken to them. They are prophesying to you a false vision, divination, futility, and the deception of their own minds. Verse 16, the people also to whom they are prophesying will be thrown out into the streets of Jerusalem because of the famine and the sword, and there will be no one to bury them. In other words, the people are the ones fueling the false teachers. False teachers have an audience because the people fuel them. They buy their books. They tell everybody they're great. I mean, there are how many books has Joel Osteen sold? I mean, I don't know. Millions of books? Too many. Just fueling that wicked satanic empire. I spoke recently, I've told you, uh, to a a very prominent woman in our city uh, whose husband is president of a Christian school here. When I mentioned Joel Osteen, she got immediately defensive and said, I met him recently. He is a nice man. I'm going, yeah. You expect him to be satanic when he talks to you? That's the perfect ruse. Satan is not walking around with a pitchfork. He does not have horns coming out of his head. He doesn't wear red, and he's not living in hell. He masquerades as an angel of light. And he's going to sound, I always, I've heard, heard me say before, if you ever saw the Jungle Book, he sounds just like Ka. And he makes the eyes do, what, what's his name? Who's the little boy? Mowgli. Mowgli's eyes. Ah, Ka, the snake. What's that? Charming. And he speaks so nice and southern. And he's got a beautiful wife. He's so nice. Why is he nice? Because that works. And people who are supposed to have some sort of discernment are actually saying things like, he's a nice man, I met him. Yeah, I'm certain he's nice. I want you to know, my friends, I, I hate what's out there. And when I read Jeremiah, this is a modern prophecy to me. Because the problems then are the problems now. The problems in Israel, the problems in the United States of America. And we're the, the last of what's best on this planet of Christianity. And it's all kind of moved south mostly. The rapture of the church, give me a break. It's not even a blip on the news. How many people are going to actually go in the rapture when only true Christians go. How many of us are there? Even at Harvest Bible Church, for that matter. You think that's going to make the news? Oh, missing people. It'll be on Dateline before you know it. 
Let's take a look. I don't have much time left. Let's take a look at the... I do want you to see 15.1, how bad it is. Then the Lord said to me, even though Moses and Samuel were to stand beside me, stand before me, Moses, Moses, the great Moses who interceded for, for the people and God always listened to, Samuel, the great prophet and judge, even if those two were here, my heart would not be with this people. Send them away from my presence and let them all go. Let them go. Take a look at the overhead. In light of the broken covenant, covenant proclaimed in Jeremiah 11, Jeremiah's role as a prophet and intercessor now has to be clarified or re-clarified. Okay, Lord, what am I supposed to be doing if they're not going to listen? We will note now how Jeremiah and God dialogue over the issues of deserved punishment and prophetic intercession. God, it's like they're arguing. God's saying, here's what I'm going to do. And Jeremiah saying, no, please don't do that. Section one is composed of two parallel subsections. And you'll find that some are in prose and some are in poetry. They say the same thing. Uh, these are the two dialogues between Jeremiah and God, both covering the same basic topic. Though false prophets were to be put to death, according to Deuteronomy 18, Israel had allowed them to function freely. And they infiltrated the royal court after Josiah's death and the early in Jeremiah's ministry. So when you allow false prophets to, to preach, they're all supposed to be put to death. And false prophets today are not so much like a Joel Osteen is not out there saying the Bible says this, but it really means that. He just doesn't talk about it. And what's ironic is before every service, doesn't he still hold up his Bible? If you know this, then you're watching him. So, this is my Bible. I'm going to read my Bible. And then it goes away. Give me some Bible preaching, Joel. Would you preach through Romans, Joel? Tell people they're sinners in need of salvation through Jesus Christ alone? Though Jeremiah pleads with God not to annul the covenant in 1421, it is indeed broken. Now there is no longer any basis for intercessory prayer from Jeremiah the prophet. The judgment is coming. That's the central theme in chapters 14 and 15. In 14, 17, 18, God weeps over the terrible tragedy that falls on his beloved people. He weeps over it. Though Jeremiah continues to plead with God, God tells him it's too late. Neither Moses nor Samuel could change his mind. God then addresses, addresses personified Jerusalem, telling her that since she has rejected him and turned away from him, he will bring terrible bereavement and destruction on her. That is the theme over and over, isn't it? In 1412, you see that religious rituals, people are doing their religious rituals then as now. Um, they cannot atone for violations of the covenant. Rituals are to be the means to enhance the relationship with God. If you like a religious ritual, maybe you grew up in the Catholic Church and you, you've come out of that and you understand the gospel, but you still like the rituals. That's okay. But that's meant to enhance your relationship with God, not to somehow, what did I say? Oh, God, I'm sorry I did that free pass. I did this. I mean, that's what the Roman Catholic Church is. If you've done that, you go to the priest and you confess. That's a good thing to confess. Go say five Hail Marys and two Our Fathers. And God is somehow in heaven going, okay, that's only four. <laughs> say the fifth repeated prayer with nothing in your heart and I'll be appeased. That is just so absurd. And say some Our Fathers. And then go do this and pay that. And I'll let you go, young man. You going about your way. How silly is that? And yet billions of people adhere to this religion and call themselves Christians. Religious rituals do nothing. I'll do this. Mobsters are Catholics. I'll whack as many people as I can and then I'll go give a bunch of money to the Catholic Church and that'll somehow wipe away my sins. Today's Roman Catholics with all its rituals. Keep the rules. Still be a Christian. That's what they tell them. Keep the rules. Well, I want to play golf on Sunday. My dad never played golf on Sunday. I say never. Was, my dad was a big golfer. But he wouldn't play golf on Sunday. He taught Sunday school at Baptist Church. Uh, there were times when he would. And uh, he, he asked uh, me one time, he said, Lance, I've never understood what his, his friend Preston, who played golf every Sunday, and he, he asked Preston, he said, how is it that you play golf on Sunday and you're, you call yourself a Christian? And his answer to my dad was, oh, my rector, who was Episcopalian pastor, my rector gave me absolution. And dad said, dad, he didn't want to ask him, but he asked me, what does that mean? I said, well, it means that, that he has promised to pay enough money to the church. And the, and the rector is able to say, don't worry, you go play golf on Sunday, you're good. Absolution, I'll give you absolution. You can do whatever you want. Just be nice to the church, go play your golf. Well, I said a few curse words on there. Well, give us a little bit of money and I'll give you absolution and we'll have your sins forgiven. Um, and people do that. That, that's what works. That's why people like their church. That's why they call their, their, their rectors and, their, and their, uh, their priests cool. They're cool. Yeah, they're cool with that. God's cool with that. 
Like magic words. I mean, what are the two magic words? I always think of two magic words when, when a magician does something. Abracadabra and? Well, that's good. <laughs> sesame, open sesame. Hocus pocus. Which is to try to show you know, this, this word that has some sort of magic, this allusion to it. Abracadabra, bam, here comes you know, the rabbit out of nowhere. And that's what people think about these, these, these rituals. If I do something, if I say something, something magic happens. Abracadabra, I'm forgiven. It's about repentance. God, I sinned. I hate that I sinned. I was wrong. I will not do it again. I'm sorry. I want to give to the church, not so that you'll forgive me, but because you did forgive me. It's a big difference, isn't there? 1413, are the people at fault given that their teachers are false? Yeah, they are. They say that what the people demand, there's no sin and there's no guilt. Don't make us feel guilty. Why don't people come to Harvest Bible Church? There's a lot of them that have been here through the years and heard me say that you are sinners. And that's the whole reason they haven't come back. I know this because I've been told by the friends that brought them. They are not coming to a church where they're told they're sinners. Well, you came to the wrong church. I mean, that's the elephant in the room. I'm telling you as a sinner, calling you a sinner, I'm not trying to insult anyone. I want you to be saved. I want you to understand you've got a problem. And the solution is our Lord Jesus. He'll turn sinners into saints. And he does it through faith and faith alone. Though Jeremiah confesses Israel's sins, this confession is only his. He cannot cover their sin with his intercessory prayer. We cannot get people forgiven. We can, we can pray for people that God would forgive, but that's not going to forgive them. Our heart is there, but that doesn't cover them. I used to have a uh, guy who used to mow his yard, mowed his yard for years. His, his wife's name was Linda. I love Linda. Linda was a fine Christian woman. And I knew her all my life, and she, most of my life, and she actually gave me money to get through seminary. She wanted to help me, and then she died. Uh, but before she died, I was talking to her husband, and I knew he wasn't a believer. My mom and dad told me he was, a, he was an atheist, and, a, and I, I was young enough, but so that would confuse me at the time. But I was about 22 20, 22 years old, and I was over there. He was paying me money, and I said, um, you ever considered going to church? I just blurted it out. He goes, nah, Linda does enough praying for us around here. And, and I, I thought about that. I thought, does she, is, that, is that adequate? I mean, would that save Jim? He thinks it might, but it doesn't, doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't happen. Some quick thoughts like Israel. Folks today cannot assume that God will bless them and take care of them when they're hostile to him and have no covenant relationship with him through Christ. Uh, does God hear? God hears everything. But is God hearing the prayers of unbelievers? No. Uh, there's no covenant relationship with him. I am obligated to one woman in this room uh, to love and protect, and that is my wife. I am obligated to that, uh, and that is who I do. I would, I would gladly help anyone in, in need or protect anyone that, that needs protection if I could help. But she is the one I have a covenant relationship with. If I didn't have that, I could not make demands of her. She could make none of me. Um, there is a covenant, a, a, not as, as deep a covenant we have here in membership at the church. If you're a member of Harvest Bible Church, you've signed off, not in your own blood, don't worry. Uh, that, you know, we are submissive to the leaders of Harvest. We will do that. We may disagree here, but we're going to submit to the leadership just to keep the peace. You know, we're not demanding, we're not tyrants, we're not making you, you know, uh, uh, eat rotten eggs or, uh, you know, handle snakes or anything, you know, to, for your, we're not going to do that. But you do, there is a covenant here at that level. I mean, again, you didn't sign it in blood, and you can leave anytime you want. But there's a covenant. We have an obligation to each other. If you're not keeping the covenant, you can't make any demands. Yet God continues to be very patient with those who repeatedly hear the gospel and yet reject it over and over. Yet at some point in everyone's life, uh, that, that day is over. Um, and I, we can't assume that God has told me or you, don't pray for these people anymore. I've certainly felt the compulsion to stop praying for people. And I've not lost any sleep over it. Uh, that doesn't mean I can't ever pray for them again. But, you know, I left it with God. God knows what he's doing. And he will do all things to his glory. The world's rejection of orthodox biblical preachers is indicative of their rejection of Christ himself. Hostile treatment of evangelists and pastors is hostile treatment of God himself. It's not us they hate, it's him they hate. Watching Ray Comfort in a recent video, and he was trying to share the gospel as he always does. And he had two seemingly nice people ready to hear, ready to hear what he had to say. 
And uh, he made the man real uncomfortable, and he, he walked away, and Ray said, no, come on back, come on back in. He got him back in. He said, I just want to tell you what the Bible says. Bam, that was it. They were gone. When they heard the word Bible, we don't believe the Bible, and they were gone. I thought, wow, Bible, Bible. So, so offensive. That, that lady that I put that on the shelf that day, or I put it on the counter in Romania, I was signing my ticket at the, the hotel, and I put my Bible there to sign it, and she, she was smiling until she saw the Bible, and she did this. She just moved back a step like the Bible was going to hurt her or something. And I said, yeah, are you a Christian? She said, I'm a Christian, but I don't believe that. Can you be? In Romania, you can. Just be a part of the Orthodox Church, and they tell you you're a Christian. Jeremiah's belt speaks of intimate relationship with God and an intimacy we have through Jesus Christ our Lord. Have we in some way tainted that, causing the best to become the worst? Do we value our close relationship with God above all other relationships? Think about that. All other relationships. If you're close with a, with a parent, a father, or a mother, or a child, does that take a, a distant backseat to relationship with God? Do we take our relationship with God for granted? Yes. Every one of us. Based on Deuteronomy 28, there's nothing arbitrary or confusing about why God's judgment comes upon others and how terrible it can be. God said, here's what's going to happen if you disobey. Now as then, we cannot ignore God, live willfully rebellious and sinful lives, and then think that by observing some simple rituals on the day of worship, we'll all be all right. For those within the covenant who have trusted Christ and now walk with God in obedience, religious ritual is a means to enhance our relationship, a means to worship and fellowship. For those without a covenant relationship with God, however, religious ritual is meaningless. Last slide. Beware if you're a preacher or teacher. Throughout Jeremiah, God expresses his anger at false teachers and their heresies. So God absolutely insists that we represent his word accurately and without any distortion based on our personal agendas or illusions. I want you to know that I, without trying to be phony, I try to preach like these prophets. I, I know it comes across as harsh. I know it because people, just this past Sunday, a guy was here visiting. He goes, man, you really bring it. You really, you don't sugarcoat it. And I thought, Geez, I thought today was pretty sugary, frankly. <laughs> I mean, people always say that about me. And my son grew up here all his life. And he goes to a, another Bible church out of Montgomery. And he was here, and I've told you this, but he said, Dad, he said, I forgot how, I don't know what the word he used, aggressive you are. Compared, you know, he said, he said I, I don't dislike it. He said, you know, but I've been in a church where it hasn't been that way. I, you know, I'm not being anyone but me. <laughs> One guy asked, he said, who are you, who are you reading? I'm not reading anybody. This is just my combative personality, I guess. But I'm not trying to be combative. This is, it's the truth and people are dying and they're going to go to hell. And there's a passion in me. There's a fire that burns that I don't want to see that. I know I'm not responsible for it. I'm responsible to preach it and I believe it. I remember a lady told me one time I shared the gospel with her. It was at a work where I used to work at International Christian Media. I had to share the gospel with one International Christian Media. And she said, I don't, I forgot her exact words. She said, I don't really believe that, but I love that you do. And I said, what does that mean? She said, it is clear that you believe what you say. Which to me said, a lot of people say those things, at least to her, and don't believe it. And, and I do, and I, I guess that's the fire that burns. And, and I don't ever, I tell you this because I want you to forgive me. I don't, I don't want to come across ever as rude, and I know that I do. There's rudeness in me at times. I promise it's not from the heart of rudeness, it's just frank. And I know people are not accustomed to being spoken to that way. Some people have ever told me that. They've told me that. I've never been spoken to that way. Well, I, I wasn't speaking to you personally, but, but these prophets made their impression on me. It's a harsh word. I think they were 10 times as harsh. And so I do it the same way. Preachers, teachers, writers should be prayerfully and studiously strive to understand God's word and portray accurately what he has so eloquently stated and preserved through the centuries. It is my job. It is my task. It is my honor to know this word and to preach it. I believe many of you, if not all of you, are already studying it on your own. You don't need me. Uh, but you, we come together in this forum, Wednesday, Sunday, to have God speak to us through his word. Uh, I don't take that lightly. I want it to be powerful. I don't really care, and I have to check myself on this. I don't really care. I don't want anybody to go away going, Lance is a great preacher. It doesn't matter. 
I, I want to be great in the sense that I'm just telling you what it says. That's what great preachers do, whether they can speak or not. I just want people to go away with God's word. That's what God set me to do. I love to do it. And I hope that there's some worship in that. Let's pray. Lord, I pray for me in that regard, and I pray for every pastor on this planet uh, who loves the Lord Jesus and who, who, has, who exists uh, to preach your word. I pray that it would be accurate. I pray for the church of Jesus Christ worldwide, that it would be powerful, that we would be faithful. I pray for this church, Harvest Bible Church, for receptive ears, for your spirit to come over us, make us bold yet loving. In Jesus' name we pray. You've been listening to a sermon by Dr. Lance Waldy, Senior Pastor of Harvest Bible Church in Cypress, Texas. 